to be able to say this this is what this monument stands for and it's not because we think it or imagine it it is because the archive tells us so um and i find that incredibly invigorating welcome to our southern futures podcast i'm melody hunter pillion with the center for the study of the american south our guest is maria estorino she is an associate university librarian for special collections and the director of Wilson Special Collections Library at UNC. According also to her Twitter profile, she's a mom, wife, and diasporic Cuban-American. Maria, welcome to the show. I want to start by congratulating you on a national recognition that you received from your peers in archival work. You recently received that recognition um, for your commitment to diversity in the archives and special collections um, profession. So congratulations, Maria. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Melody. Thanks for having me and also for your kind words. I really appreciate it. Maria, I want to start with talking about you as a Southerner. Mm -hmm. So you grew up in the South, but as a young person, didn't really identify with being Southern. That's right. I grew up uh, in Miami, Florida, in a Cuban household. My parents um, are from Cuba. And um, no, I did not, even though you can't get further South geographically in the U.S. continent, the continental mainland, right? I never considered myself a Southerner. And I would argue that none of my peers growing up uh, really identified as Southerners as part of our identity. I was Cuban, my friends were Nicaraguan, Venezuelan, Brazilian. Um, and it really wasn't until I left Miami to go to college, I attended Loyola University in New Orleans, that I really had any concept of what the American South was beyond what I might've consumed in media, right? And that really was very jarring. I felt like I had to learn a whole new just a whole new way of being and seeing the world. Uh, new Orleans is definitely a good place to be introduced to the South though. You know, the traditional notion of what it means to be from the American South, I don't think includes someone like me um, who grew up in a Spanish speaking household, who grew up uh, with cultural traditions that really were invested in retaining um, uh, an identity um, and a cultural experience that was very tied to a place that really for me only existed in my imagination, but that I felt like I knew very intimately because there was so much nostalgia and connection to, to Cuba in the way, in the community and in the family that I grew up. And so leaving Miami was a, an, an experience of learning what it meant to be other, because even though growing up in Miami, you know, you're other for not being, when I was growing up, it was, a, if you weren't Cuban or, or you know, whatever you were, you were American. <laughs> And so that's what I think we would maybe call white today. And, you know, there was that distinction, but really feeling othered uh, to me really wasn't leaving Miami and, and, and stepping into a different context and really having to think much more intentionally about who I was and how what I thought my identity was and what mattered to me. And I'll, I'll be honest, I still don't think of myself as a Southerner, even though I've lived in the South for the majority of my life, um, it's it's not an identity that I think I've claimed. This question of identity, though, that you really start exploring as a young adult, but at what age was it, thereabouts, if you could estimate it, when you started thinking about your work with, you know, in the archives and preserving history and, uh, and preserving heritage, like how far back does that go for you? 
when I think of my own origin story, <laughs> I have two kind of points that I that I think of as like where where it all began. When I was nine years old, my cousin was dating a woman um, who eventually became his wife, who uh, we started spending a lot of time with them. And she was very generous with her time and saw that I had an interest in photography and taught me how to use a camera, a single lens reflex camera. She taught me how to use a dark room. And she gave me a book that was a history of American photography for young people. And that was really a turning point for me. I had always been interested in history and social studies as a kid. But for me, seeing photographs of historical moments really did something to my mind. It really just shifted something in how I understood the past and really just solidified for me that interest in history and in, and in the past. Around the same time, I read a story about Margaret Burke White, who was, she did the photograph that was the first cover of Life magazine. And she was a photographer in World War II. And she's, she, she's probably best known for photographs that she, she had. There's a really famous photograph of her sitting on a gargoyle on the Chrysler building because she had an office there that, that opened into the gargoyle. And someone took a portrait of her there. And she also did a famous portrait of Gandhi uh, sitting with a spinning wheel in front of him. Anyway, so the photography really and the visual experience of historical figures and historical moments really, I think, had a you know, big impact on my path forward. When I was in college, I was studying history. The only thing I understood that you could do with history was teach it. And so I started off as a secondary education minor, but very quickly lost interest in that. <laughs> Um, but but not in history. And I, and I really didn't know what to do with that. Like, I didn't know how to translate that into a career. Um, and then in my junior year of college, I was lucky enough to get an internship with the Smithsonian Institution Archives. They were starting to do research in preparation for their sesquicentennial. And I was assigned to a research project in the archives that was looking at the relationships, especially the scientific relationships between the Smithsonian and scientists in Latin America. And so that was a real game changer for me as well, in that it really exposed me to a lot of careers that you could pursue that were not in the classroom, that were not in an academic setting, but that really were trying to engage people in an experience of history and, and how we understand ourselves and our present through a, an, you know, an engagement with the past. And, and also I would say that right when I was at the Smithsonian, they had just released a report that was put out by a task force that the Smithsonian had commissioned to look at how its various, because you know, the Smithsonian has some, I don't know, 17 museums, how the museums in the Smithsonian Institution talked about, represented the, the Latinx experience. And the report was called Willful Neglect. <laughs> so you can imagine what the assessment of the task force was. That had a very big, big impact because that was the moment for me where I connected the absence in the historical record and that there were intentional choices that people who make up institutions make about what is included, what is not, what stories get told and known and which ones don't. The origin story you just told really goes back then to this recognition you received this year from your peers, this national recognition because of your commitment to diversity in the archives 
And as a historian of color myself, I appreciate the huge role that diversity plays in collections. And so for folks who are not as familiar with archival work, could you talk a bit more about how diversity or, you know, even even more so the lack of diversity um, has impacted pr- preservation and therefore history and the narratives about who we are, who we think we are? The history of South Florida, for example, or even of Cuba, as we understood it, and of so many things. You know, the Negro Leagues are celebrating an anniversary this year. So many players in the Negro Baseball Leagues were from Latin America, from Cuba, from the Dominican Republic, from Puerto Rico, because that was the only league that they could play in in segregated United States, right? And so, like, all of these kind of unknown stories, I felt really compelled um, to be part of that. And so what happens is this, is, you know, if if whiteness is the the norm, which I think, you know, we're all coming to uh, think more critically about whiteness as, a, as an identity, about white whiteness as supreme, and if you think of whiteness as a norm, um, and if librarians and archivists are primarily white, there is going to be an inherent bias in what are the stories that we feel connected to, that we feel we understand, and that we value. And I think, you know, what, what happens in archives is not different from what happened in the field of history, which transitioned from, you know, the great man approach to social history with the social movements in the 60s and the 70s, archives did the same thing. You know, in the 70s, I forget what year it was, but I think it might have been 1970. Um, I'll have to fact check that. But um, Howard Zinn spoke to the Society of American Archivists, and he basically said, you have to be activist archivists. This notion that archives are passive repositories where other people deposit their materials is no longer viable. And we cannot do the work of social history if archivists are not actively pursuing and documenting other than the great man, the great men who we think of as making history, right? And so um, there is the matter of the historical record, but there's also the matter of the field. Librarianship and archives is still a predominantly white field. If you don't have people who have lived different experiences um, working in libraries and archives, I think it becomes difficult to make to have a broader perspective on what what history matters, what history is worth preserving. And so I know I could tell you that at Wilson, that really bears out. I mean, the you know, some of those collections were really built at a time uh, that parallels the lost cause movement. And you know, the idea that that the truth about the South needed to be preserved. And you know, the, the foundation of many of those collections are these uh, plantation records and these families that enslaved hundreds of people over time uh, to create their wealth and their prominence. And so that is one version of the South, but is it a complete version? Absolutely not. And so what is what does that mean? Um, does that mean that we can build relationships of trust with communities that we have not represented in our collections? We may not be able to. Sometimes we can, and we work very hard to earn that trust and to do right by those relationships. And sometimes we can't. And so that calls upon us to, to think of our work differently, um, to think of our work as not just archive building, like give it to us and we'll take care of it and we'll do our professional work to make sure it'll be forever, you know, forever documented and preserved. It may be approaching relationships with uh, humility and with a different point of view, which is, you know, instead of starting from you have things that we want, 
please give them to us, starting with what are the stories that matter to you? Um, why do they matter? Where do you want to see those stories told? And then how can we support you in that? How can we help you in preserving those stories and collecting those stories and digitizing those stories? And whether we get the materials into our library or not, I think we have a lot of um, opportunity and responsibility to, um, to engage in different ways in, in archival processes. This is Southern Futures, and our guest is Maria Estorino, Associate University Librarian for Special Collections and Director of Wilson Special Collections Library at UNC. Maria, the materials housed in Special Collections are from the past. You've spoken about that, but you've also mentioned that they're very much uh, a part of and play a role in contemporary needs. So how are archive materials at UNC being used by for instance, student activists, or or to examine the campus and its history? The presence of the past um, is very obvious. When I started at UNC in January of 2017, um, you know, in August is when the Unite the Right rally happened in Charlottesville, and when protests on our own campus about Silent Sam, the Confederate monument, really started to pick up Again, uh, and I say again because there's a long history of student activism around the Confederate monument and what it and what it stands for on our campus. And one of the things that was really um, really amazing for me uh, being on this campus was seeing how student activists engaged with the archive, uh, not only to understand but to document. You know, to bring the receipts forward, right? Like to be able to say this is what this monument stands for. And it's not because we think it or imagine it. It is because the archive tells us so. And I find that incredibly invigorating. You know, whoever collected Julian Carr's papers never imagined that they would be used to prove that he was a white supremacist um, and that the monument represented his views. Uh, that is not why Julian Carr's papers were collected, but that is the magic of archives, is that the archive speaks to us in different moments and different ways, depending on the questions we ask of it. And student activists are asking questions that really are calling for an accounting and an accountability that I feel very proud that the archives can support. You know, if you look at something like the Silence Time Reckoning Twitter account that has, you know, rigorously researched each and every one of the students that the monument, uh, that, that, you know, that fought in the Confederacy, that the monument is meant to honor, and their relationship with slavery, right? I mean, that's thanks to records that we've kept, that the state archives have kept, newspaper accounts that we've digitized and have made searchable online. You know, that that knowledge is is there because the archives uh, are there and they're open, right? I mean, like we really value access. That's really one of our driving motivations. And so um, I think that there's still a lot more that we're going to see the archives being used for as students come to understand the past and make sense of our present, but really imagine a different future. And I think uh, as the, for example, the Commission on you know, Race, History and a Way Forward, as the, the, you know, the recommendations to rename buildings on campus, that, that research is, again, you know, grounded in, in the archive. Um, 
as we understand what, who exactly we're honoring and, and what they did, and as we think and imagine and dream about who we want to honor in renaming those buildings, you know, that that is also going to be grounded in archival research. And, and so I'm really excited about, about that. Artists are also using the archives in, in ways for artistic expression. How does the library encourage that type of engagement with, with artists? I'm really excited that you're asking about this because you really hit on something that matters a lot to me is that um, we think about the past is dormant. I think that's the word that you used. And as someone who has worked in archives for over 20 years, I see them as such more active spaces and I think exists in our everyday imagination about what archives are. Whenever you hear archives mentioned in a newspaper article, for example, they're dusty <laughs> um, or they're quiet. And it's true, you know, we are quiet spaces. We're not dusty because, you know, we do care for the materials that we have. But to me, um, this, this idea of action is really important because that's where the value of the records lie and is, is in how they are used. And so we, we tend to think of their use as a researcher, right? Either sitting at their computer or coming into our research room and requesting a box or, or a book or you know, a newspaper, leafing through materials and going off and doing their work based on what they found in the archive. And what I'm interested in is other engagements with the archive, other, other ways in which um, maybe not researchers producing an article or a book might turn to the archive. And artistic engagement is a space that I think is really interesting and exciting for how an artist might approach a historical record. And so uh, this was happening just as I was getting to UNC. Liz Ott, who's our rare book curator, and Alice Whiteside, who's the head of our art library, were collaborating to create uh, funding for students who wanted to use special collections in the creation of art, right? Not in the creation of a research paper, but in the creation of an artistic piece, performing art or visual art or, you know, or, or whatever. And so thanks to them, we launched what is now called the Incubator Program, Incubator Awards. What does that mean? How does that change the landscape of research and creativity in the archives when we think of, you know, archival collections as data? And it challenges the notions of what we think the archives are for and how people use them. On the Books is a perfect example of that. Um, several years ago, we partnered with the State Library to digitize legal the North Carolina laws. Sarah Carrier, who's a, our North Carolina Research and Instruction Librarian at Wilson Library, um, she's involved in uh, K-12 teacher training programs with Carolina K-12. And she had a, she got a question from a teacher, a high school teacher, who said, I'm looking for a list of all of North Carolina's Jim Crow laws. Where do I find one? Well, one doesn't exist. So, Melody, if you wanted to do that, right, your first thought might be, I need to read every single one of these books and, and identify um, which laws are Jim Crow. And so that if you're thinking about, you know, over 100 years worth of books, that's going to take you forever. So imagine instead if you asked a computer to read for you, right? A computer can do it faster and it could do, it could produce different results than the human can, right? Uh, thanks to the Mellon Foundation support for collections as data as an initiative. And what we will have is essentially two uh, data corpora. We, we have uh, one data corpora that is uh, corpus that is all of the North Carolina laws. And then we'll have a second one, which is those that through text mining, we have identified as Jim Crow laws. So then what are you able to do? You can ask, start asking that 
that corpus. What are the laws related to education? What are the laws related to land acquisition and zoning and land sales and restrictions? What are the laws related to gender? What are the laws related to Native Americans? You know, like there's, you can then start to ask more and more questions, right? We're entering our Southern Futures reading corner, and Maria, I love this part of the show because I never know what excerpt someone is going to read and, you know, what piece of literature they're reading from. And it does tell us something about each person, I think. So I'm just going to see what this might tell us about you. (laughs) What are you reading? What did you choose for us? Tell us why you chose this particular selection. So I'm reading um, an excerpt from a story from Edwidge Danticat's um, collection of stories, Everything Inside. And the story, it's the final one um, in the book. It's called Without Inspection. And I chose it for a couple of reasons. One is because it is the last, the most recent thing that I read that literally moved me to tears. Like it really affected me in part because of the story itself but all the ways in which it touches on what the South Florida experience. Um, The other reason is because I have a bit of a gripe with how we understand Florida literature and Florida fiction. I think that most people, when, if you think of a Florida writer, you're you're probably going to think of a, if you're not thinking of Zora Neale Hurston, you're probably thinking of a white man who writes funny stories about the crazy Florida people and the politics and the corruption down there. And I think that that's not that while that is part of the Florida experience, it's not what I experienced. And so right. I so really, people think of Hemingway, right? Well, I think of Hemingway. You might think of Carl Hyacin. Not to call these people out. They are funny authors and very successful. Dave Barry, um, you know, folks like that. And and to me, Edwidge, as a Haitian American, even though she did not grow up in uh, South Florida, she has lived there for a long time. I love all of her work in general. She mostly writes about Haiti, but I think um, when she does write about South Florida, it's incredible. And I recommend um, you can pick up any of her books and, and really be blown away. But this this story, especially um, w- without inspection, I thought was wonderful. And I'm just going to read uh, just a little part of it. So in this story, um, Arnold is a Haitian man who is working in construction and um, has fallen. He's building, helping to build a luxury hotel in South, in Miami, and he's fallen and is falling. And the story takes place while he is falling from a scaffold um, into a cement mixer. So I'm gonna just, it's real, I'm picking it up literally in the middle of the story. He was still falling faster by the second. The wind felt increasingly resistant, each gust a hard blue veil to pierce through even as the ground rose to meet him. His body veered farther left and directly below him was an open cement mixer chute attached to a truck, the kind that had always looked like a spaceship to him. He'd been looking down at the cement truck a few hours earlier as he sat on the scaffold platform eating his breakfast. Darlene liked him to eat at home with her in Paris, but he was always in too much of a hurry to do it, except on the rare Saturdays and Sundays when neither of them had to work. During the week, he drove her to the Haitian restaurant where she was a cook. Then he dropped Paris off at school. 
By the time he got to the construction site, he had just a couple of minutes to buy a guava pastry and a cup of coffee from the Lopez brothers' food truck. What enterprising guys the Lopez brothers were. Only five years earlier, they'd arrived from Cojimar on a raft made from a refitted 1950s Chevy. And look at them now. The Lopez brothers' raft story, which he'd once heard them tell to another Cuban while he was waiting for his breakfast, had reminded him of his own landing, which was oh so different from theirs. Darlene had been the only person sitting on the beach in the pre-dawn light the morning that he, nine other men, and four women were ditched in the middle of the sea and told by the captain to swim ashore. The sea was relatively calm that morning. As Arnold got closer to the beach, he also noticed the towering buildings, the tall glass edifices he'd always heard about. All four women had drowned. They could not swim. Their bodies might eventually wash up on the beach, just as his did, except that he was still alive. Some of the men who had been on the boat with him were alive too. They lay on the beach and tried to convince themselves by digging their heels and toes into the sand that they were no longer moving. He, on the other hand, just sat there looking at her. He did not want to walk over to her and frighten her away. He stank, and he was certain that the patchy beard he'd grown on the trip made him look menacing. She was staring back at him. Then he heard the sirens, and he began pleading. It's an amazing story. I hope, I really hope that um, people will pick up the book, but especially the that last story. Um, it speaks to so many different things, Melody. Thank you again for introducing us to, for me, a new writer anyway. You're welcome. Um, and for that particular ec- excerpt. But Maria, we're going to wrap up now. I want your thoughts on the South and the future. So again, you're a professional leader, um, an archivist, your mother also. So in those combined roles, how do you reimagine the South? You know, I think a lot about this in terms of how can not only can we reimagine the South, but how can the South be reshaped? And as someone who often is an outsider uh, or feels like an outsider, you know, I, I often think about how much room does this organization or this place or this community have to be changed by people like me or people who are not from here and have, you know, the shared definition of what it means to be from whatever. Uh, So in this case, to be from the South, you know, when I look at the rising number of Latinx communities in the South, even in our own state here in North Carolina, you know, do they have to become Southerners or do we imagine, reimagine what it means to be a Southerner and what it means to be the South? by the way that that people and communities reshape it. And that, I don't know that I have an, an answer for how to do that, but I certainly hope that the South is a place that has room to be redefined um, by new influences and new cultural traditions and new perspectives, because ultimately that's what diversity is, right? It's not, it's not saying this is who we are and you are diverse and we welcome you into our organization and now we are diverse. Diversity and change really happens when the organization is willing to change because of the diverse perspectives that are brought into it. And I would argue that that is the same for how we think about the South. So thank you for, of course, also your dedication to preserve and share history and culture in an era when it's very challenging to do so. So now, if you're listening to Southern Futures, we want to thank you for your time, too. For executive producer, Dr. Melinda Maynard-Lowry and sound editor, Mark Meyer, I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion. Southern Futures is a podcast powered by the Southern Futures Initiative. It's a new collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, 
and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Southern Futures, reimagine the American South.